Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, well, this week is the fourth anniversary over at Waking Up. And I wanted to share a bit more about why I've decided to put so much attention over there and to build the app in the first place. Seems to me that many of you in the Making Sense audience don't necessarily understand what I'm doing over there. When I was a teenager, after two people very close to me died, I became interested in certain esoteric questions, like what is the nature of consciousness, and what is a self, and what's the connection between the human mind and reality in the first place? How is it possible to understand reality? And how should our answers to such questions inform how we live? Now, these topics didn't just interest me philosophically or scientifically. I wanted to explore them directly through first-hand experience, which is to say I wasn't looking to merely know more or to believe new things. I wanted to live differently. And all of this culminated for me after my sophomore year in college, when I dropped out of school for what amounted to a full decade. This was the late 80s and 90s. And during that time, I made many trips to India and Nepal, where I got a chance to study with some of the greatest meditation teachers alive at that point. And I spent about two years on silent retreats, ranging in length from one week to three months. I also read very widely in the literature of philosophy and religion and contemplative spirituality, both from the East and the West. I also took psychedelics occasionally, more so in the beginning. And all of this served to fundamentally change my perspective on what was possible for minds like ours. So I came out of these years of seeking a very different person, and in many ways I found the experiential answers I had been looking for. But none of this amounted to making viable contact with the world, much less a career. So eventually I went back to school, where perhaps unsurprisingly I majored in philosophy. And because I was still fascinated by the core questions of the mind and its connection to reality at large, I then did a PhD in neuroscience. However, just as I was beginning my doctoral research, studying belief, disbelief, and uncertainty using functional magnetic resonance imaging, September 11th happened. And because I had spent the previous decade deeply immersed in religious literature, my concerns about the threat of fundamentalism were already very well formed. It really didn't take me more than 24 hours to figure out what we were dealing with and to anticipate how confused many smart people would be by the problem of jihadism. The truth is many are still confused by it. So I stepped away from my research at that point and published two books, The End of Faith and then Letter to a Christian Nation, which dealt with the Christian backlash to the end of faith. In both of these books, I argue that faith and reason really are in conflict, and that religion and science, therefore, are in perennial conflict. And together with the biologist Richard Dawkins and the philosopher Daniel Dennett and the writer Christopher Hitchens, I became known as a new atheist and as one of the four horsemen of a new wave of opposition to organized religion. And all of this took some years to play out, and the resulting skirmishes in the culture war kept me away from my research for nearly four years. However, I've always been truly bored by politics. 
and most interested in those first questions that sent me to Asia and into the silence of retreat. These questions about consciousness and the self and the nature of reality, whether we can know what is real, ultimately. For me, these are not divorced from everyday concerns. In fact, they directly relate to the most fundamental causes of human happiness and suffering, and to the larger question of what it means to live a good life. And ironically, they keep bringing me back to politics, which happens a fair amount on this podcast. My main concern at this point is to figure out how we can all live together so as to maximize the chance that humanity will thrive now and in the future. So while waking up is often described as a meditation app, its purpose isn't just to help you meditate. It's to help you live a more examined and fulfilling life altogether. The point is to help you close the gap between the person you want to be and the person you seem to be in this moment. Now, like this podcast, Waking Up is run as a subscription business. However, also like this podcast, we've always provided free membership to anyone who can't afford it. You need only send an email to support at wakingup.com to receive a free year on the app. And this can be repeated as many times as one needs. Our business philosophy is pretty simple. Of course, we want to grow as a company and build wonderful things. But we never want money to be the reason why someone can't benefit from our work. We also give a minimum of 10% of our profits to the most effective charities. And this commitment to reducing suffering on other fronts has been central to our mission from the beginning. Now, perhaps you've tried meditation before and decided it's not for you. Or you think all this talk about the nature of mind and the illusoriness of the self is just New Age mumbo-jumbo. Well, okay. But if you leave it there, you really are shirking the challenge I'm posing to you. Because my claim is that you have spent most of your life lost in thought. That is, thinking without recognizing thought itself as a process, and therefore not recognizing what the mind is like prior to identification with thought. And this status quo is the basis of all of your suffering. It's the mechanism by which disappointment and worry and regret and anger and sadness color your life. It's the thing that makes you bad company for others and for the important people in your life whom you ostensibly love. It's what makes you an asshole when you are an asshole. And you are extraordinarily likely to spend the rest of your life in this condition, unless you look into the matter deeply. And it's over at waking up that I most fully explore this terrain. So yet another pitch from me to look into it, if you haven't. And as chance would have it, today's conversation is about death and how to prepare for it in practical terms. Now, death is something I've thought a lot about. I've always had a sense that I think about it more than most people, certainly more than most people I know. I lost one of my best friends when I was 13, and my father died when I was 17. I don't think this is an unusual amount of exposure to death, but for some reason these losses were very formative for me. For as long as I can remember, certainly since I was 13, I've thought about death many times a day. Some of this thinking may have been morbid, but much of it's been useful. Though I can't say I haven't wasted time, I don't have any important regrets 
at this point. In the last few years, I've been keenly aware that I've outlived my father. He died at 51. And I've often recalled what it was like for him to live his last year of a life interrupted by sickness and death. When I read or listen to authors or philosophers or scientists who I admire, I notice which ones are dead, and I notice what age they were when they lived their last day of life. And when I hear or read one of them say something about the future, I occasionally do a quick bit of math and realize this was a future they never lived to see. I enjoy old films and photographs, but not merely for what their creators intended. I also view them as rather vivid obituaries to the people in them. So more and more I live with a sense of the finiteness of life, and it's making me wiser, I think. I mean, we work and travel and eat and sleep and dream, and we repeat these things as though we might live forever, and yet one day we will die. There is something astonishing about this. I really don't think I'm afraid to die, though perhaps I'm afraid of the chaos and pain and indignity that might surround the process of dying. But as to the ultimate experience of finally surrendering my life in the world, I don't actually worry about that. And again, I would credit my experience with meditation and also with psychedelics for that. I do believe it's possible to run the loss of everything in emulation mode before it actually happens. You might see my description of what it was like to take five grams of mushrooms for more color there. However, losing the people I love is something that worries me. Paradoxically, it doesn't worry me that I will lose everyone when I die. I just worry that I could lose some very important people while I still have many years yet to live. And I'm also aware that I have at least a few people in my life who are very worried about losing me. So, anticipated sorrow haunts our living. We know we're going to lose people, and we know that others we love will lose us. We know, therefore, we will be givers and receivers of grief. What a strange situation. So much of my interest in meditation derives from this. How can we live truly fulfilling lives in light of death? How can we prepare our minds to lose everything? Well, among other things, by learning what it means to not hold on to anything. What is it like to have a mind that doesn't cling to memories, or to hopes for the future, or to experience itself? That is really the essence of meditation. Meditation isn't, in the end, a practice you add to your life. It is the discovery of what it means to not cling to experience, to identity, to a concept of a self. What is that experience like? It's doing less rather than more. It is ceasing to do something you're doing by tendency right now. And if you can't find that experience of freedom now, it seems very unlikely that you'll find it later, amid the great unraveling at the end of life. Anyway, today's conversation is a very practical discussion about the unavoidable fact that life ends. Either you will die and others will have to deal with the aftermath, 
or you will live long enough to have to deal with the deaths of the people you love, and then you will die. And there really is a fair amount of practical wisdom that can help you navigate this process. Today I'm speaking with B.J. Miller and Shoshana Berger, and they've written a very compassionate and useful book, A Beginner's Guide to the End, Practical Advice for Living Life and Facing Death. And as I emphasized several times in this conversation, the conversation really isn't a surrogate for reading the book, because there is a fair amount of practical advice to give here. B.J. Miller is a hospice and palliative medicine physician who's worked in many different settings, and he now sees patients and families at the UCSF Helen Diller Family Comprehensive Cancer Center. He speaks all over the country and internationally on the theme of living well in the face of death, and he's been profiled in the New York Times and elsewhere. Shoshana Berger is the editorial director of IDEO, and she was a senior editor at Wired. She's written for the New York Times, Fast Company, Time, Wired, Popular Science, and other journals. She's also the author of another book, Ready-Made, How to Make Almost Everything. And today we talk about preparing for death. We discuss the difference between palliative care and hospice the tension between getting the most out of life and not clinging to experience. We talk about planning for death while still healthy, the importance of an advanced directive, navigating the healthcare system, pain control at the end of life, assisted suicide, psychedelic therapy for end-of-life anxiety, and other topics. Again, this is a subject you might not want to think about, but I'm convinced you'll be better off if you do. And now I bring you B.J. Miller and Shoshana Berger. I am here with B.J. Miller and Shoshana Berger. B.J., Shoshana, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having thanks us, Thanks for Sam. having us, Sam. So um, you have written a, a wonderfully useful book together, A Beginner's Guide to the End, Practical Advice for Living Life and Facing Death. But it will not be without trepidation that most people pick up such a, a volume. I, and, I, and I want us to just get into really everything relevant here. I mean, th- there's no way this conversation will be a, a surrogate for reading your book because your, your book is filled with practical advice that really is better read than, than listened to in terms of the kind of you know, checklist advice one can have for um, people facing terminal illness or going through the experience of, of having a loved one face it. So we'll touch on some of that and anything that's, that seems super important, you know, feel free to, to interject it. But it's just a, a note to listeners that there's more in the book of practical significance than, than we will cover here. But before we jump into the topic, perhaps each of you can tell me how you came to focus on death and dying professionally to this degree. What, how is that? Most people think about death, but you two have gone all in. Maybe BJ, we can start with you. What? How did you come to this topic? Yeah, a couple different ways, Sam. Professional. Well, I don't know. Personally, professionally, kind of came, kind of co-evolved. I, you know, for me, a lot of it starts with my own injuries when I was nineteen. You know, sophomore in college. That's when I came very close to death myself, and that, you know, was a real wake-up call, as you can imagine, to take life well. To say take life seriously, but mm. 
also playfully take, you know, but really get into this thing while I have it. It, it might be worth telling that story, however briefly you want to, because it's, you know, people sure. uh, might imagine that you were playing football and got a concussion or something more prosaic, but you, you had a fairly spectacular encounter with mortality or near mortality. I did, but I'm chuckling because you reminded me of a, a moment at a restaurant long ago when I was wearing shorts. So I'm a triple amputee, guys. Um, I'll tell that story in a second, but um, <laughs> very sweet, ancient woman approached me in a restaurant and said, tapped me on the shoulder and said, football injury? <laughs> and I've never, I didn't know how to answer that. But anyway, so yeah, when I was 19, I was just horsing around with friends and there was a parked commuter train just on the edge of campus sitting there, not moving, not, you know, just sitting there. And we decided to climb it like you'd climb a tree, just kind of being sophomores, sophomoric. And the power lines run overhead. And I, when I stood up, I had a metal watch on my left wrist and the electricity arced to the watch and a uh, big explosion. And, you know, I was in and out of was close to death in the burn unit there in New Jersey for, you know, maybe six weeks or so, in there a total of three months or so, but survived, hello, but end up losing both legs below the knee and my left arm below the elbow. So yeah, it was a pretty spectacular moment that was a real, you can imagine real crossroads in my life that led me into medicine and an interest in life that included death, an interest in life that included loss and suffering as well as joys and immutability and change. So that was very much my entree. That, that took me into medicine. At first, I was going to do rehab medicine. Disability was the thing that I kind of walked away most interested in. Mm. What, what do human beings do when they bump up against things they can't change or can't control? And that was really the nugget for me. And from there, it was also entwined with, with death. But as I kind of got into it more and more, suffering, death, wanting to change, not wanting to change, that whole stew kind of begat palliative medicine that took me into hospice and palliative medicine. And from there, death became front and center with a lot of the hospice work. But even for patients who had plenty of life left, I was noticing that death, either metaphorical death or you know, physical death, it could be this great prompt this great foil. And so that is when I really began to work with it professionally to mirror what I was doing personally. Mm. So anyway, I don't know how short that was, yeah. but that's the gist of how I got into this subject. And uh, Shoshana, how did you come to this? So it started as a very personal issue for me. I'd, I'd had a lot of exposure to death pretty early on in life. My, my college roommate, OD'd, and I've, I've had actually two boyfriends die of the same cancer, which is very odd. Mm. And then uh, the the kind of critical death for me was my father's death, and I met BJ just after that, and that's when it became professional. So we actually we met at IDEO, the global design company where I work. At the time, BJ was the executive director of the Zen Hospice, which is this beautiful residential hospice located, it used to be located in a Victorian house in San Francisco where people came for comfort and care at the end of life. And as you may know, Sam, hospice carries an unfortunate stigma. Many people actually consider it to be a kind of death sentence. Mm -hmm. 
So BJ and his team came to IDEO hoping we could find a, a creative way to recast or effectively rebrand hospice in a way that would communicate its value because it's really the most holistic, palliative, and, and free suite of care you can opt for at the end of life. And so when the designers at IDEO caught wind that we'd be working on designing the end of life experience, they were so excited about working on something that was so consequential and so poorly designed in American culture, largely because we live in denial of our own mortality and do everything we can to avoid thinking about it. So this idea of designing quite literally life and death was extremely exciting and everyone wanted to work at it, on it. Designers were throwing themselves into the volcano. <laughs> and I ended up on a small team. We created this kickoff meeting to invite BJ in, where we actually built this tunnel that led from our office entrance on the pier at the bay in San Francisco to this dome-like structure built to fit a small group just sitting in the round. And in internally, that meeting space became known as the Death Yurt. <laughs> and on that first day when we met BJ, we led him in through this kind of liminal tunnel, this passageway that terminated in this candlelit dome. And it had a transparent top and it caught the flickering shadows of the candlelight. And we, we just wanted to create an intimate, safe inner sanctum for this conversation. And there were 10 of us there and our assignment was to come ready to talk about how we design our final moments on earth. So we started going around the room and each person painted a more opulent picture than the last of, of what their final moments like, might look like. I mean, alone at the top of a mountain or being surrounded by all your friends and family, but in a forest or, or assembling your perfect curated death playlist. And I remember I was dreading my turn because I was fresh off of my father's death just three months before, and I had just started at IDEO, and I wanted to join this rapture, but I'd witnessed my father's death as something so, so quiet and, and something that didn't remotely resemble any of these lofty visions. I mean, my father suffered with dementia and depression for many years. And he did not have an easy death. And by the time we got him on hospice, he was mostly unconscious. He hadn't uttered an intelligible word for a year. And my last moments with him were, you know, as I would, I would imagine many last moments with loved ones are, just very quietly by the bedside, stroking his forehead and wetting his lips with a sponge and whispering that I loved him and scrambling to find a CD of Yiddish music because I knew those were the beloved songs of his childhood and that, you know, hearing is the last sense that, that you lose, hoping that he would hear that. So anyway, I was trying to square my experience with this exercise that we designed for kicking off this work with BJ and this hospice, but my father's experience felt so undesigned and so over-medicalized and, and in many ways quite inhumane. And so when my turn came, I just, I just said as much, and I, I broke into tears. And I remember BJ was sitting across the room from me and locked eyes with me. And I knew that he understood as a palliative care physician who, whose work is to usher people through this human condition of, of suffering. He, he knew that 
that's what death looks like. And it looks nothing like what we see on TV. And it, you know, often happens in an ICU and in a clinical setting. And so anyway, I came to understand that designing one's life and death doesn't mean that you can really control it. It means that you can come up with some principles for Mm. how to be true to how you want to live. Well, so you've you've introduced a couple of terms here uh, and also a a stigma associated with one of them. Perhaps we can explain this uh, state of affairs. So, BJ, can you differentiate palliative care from hospice? And either one of you can tell us why there is such a, a gravity to invoking hospice care and you know, how, how we should think about that. Yeah, sure. And Shosh, maybe I'll define some of these things. And yeah, I'll leave it to you to, th- to help us understand how they land with the public we've been wrestling with. I mean, Palliative care, it, it, it gets so confusing, Sam, and I really appreciate your question. I mean, people within medicine get confused about what the heck palliative care is. So it's really Im- important. So hospice came first. It's an ancient idea, really took off in modern terms in the UK in the 60s, came to the US in the 70s and 80s as a sort of a non-medical, largely volunteer approach to care. And it was very beautiful. And in the 80s, Medicare got in the business and started paying for it in a novel way. And you tell me, Sam, we can take any little tributaries on policy fronts or whatever else along the way here. But since the 80s, hospice became an insurance benefit. So that's how we say we're on hospice. We're on the insurance benefit called hospice. So it's, hospice is this, has many meanings, but it is this kind of care reserve for the final six months or a year of life, say. But into the 80s and 90s, I mean, people who did this kind of work one way and another would kind of realize, well, why, why are we waiting till the end of people's lives to listen to them, to defer to their experience, to honor them, to tend to their comfort, to their peace, help them make meaning, deal with meaninglessness, you know, help the families reckon and square what's going on and live on? You know, it's beautiful, beautiful stuff, but it was, we reserved it for the final six months or less to live, you know? So in the 90s, the idea was to try to to break it free of the insurance designation, which is the thing that said six months or less to live, and you got to give up certain kinds of care to go on to hospice, all these kind of invented hurdles, man-made. And so in the 90s, the field of palliative care grew up. It, the term was coined by Balfour Mount in Canada, who was one of the first hospice docs in, the, in North America. And he, we were trying to always evade the baggage of the hospice designation. And also it's, it's, it's sort of attachment to death because the whole idea is really to live well until you die. It's not about celebrating death per se. It's really about celebrating life and eking out all that you can while you can. So out of care grew up in the 90s as a field to say, no, no, our work here is, is multiple disciplines coming together to you know, mitigate suffering, essentially, to focus on the experience of illness, not the transactions of disease management, to help you suffer less and help you realize more joy. That's kind of the gist. So palliative care is this now the umbrella term since 2006. The field at large is palliative care. Hospice now is considered a subset of palliative care that is this kind of multidiscipline work, but still reserved for the final months of life. 
Uh, whereas in palliative care, I'll, it's the same training. So I'm a, you can, you're a hospice doc as well as a palliative care doc. They come mm. together. But in my palliative care clinic, I'll see people for many, many years or people who are in remission who aren't dying anytime soon. So sorry for right. the long answer, brother, no, that, but that's, that's kind of hard to do it succinctly. That's good. So, but is it true to say that hospice only gets triggered once you admit you being the patient, the family, in concert with the healthcare provider, that you're no longer doing anything to you know, fight this illness and attempt to overcome it. You're not deliberately prolonging life at that point. I mean, what, what is it that you are no longer doing in order to, to invoke hospice? So that's right. So you're pointing to the two main sort of stipulations of the hospice benefit to qualify for this kind of care to be paid for. Two things. Two doctors have to certify that your death will likely come in six months or less. To you know, we're we're pretty bad at prognosis, so it's mm -hmm. a best guess. And the second stipulation is what you're pointing to is you have to, you know, essentially stop trying to combat this illness. So if you're dying from say heart failure, if that's your hospice diagnosis, you can come into hospice. We will stop a lot of these expensive heart pumps and things like that that are uh, sustaining your life or trying to cure or reverse the heart disease. That care then goes into instead making sure you're comfortable and working with you for the time that you have to realize certain things in your life, et cetera. It becomes much more social, uh, much more supportive in a word. Mm -hmm. Rather than trying to fight the disease, you're trying to support the person. So that's the kind of segue of care. Your other diagnoses, if you have diabetes and any other thing, that can continue to be treated. But the diagnosis that qualifies you for hospice, you no longer qualify to push back on that disease. And in the 80s, that made a lot of sense. There wasn't, by the time you reached this point, there wasn't much more to try to beat your disease. Or by then, the person was really not interested in this or that treatment. It was too taxing, too toxic. It's getting a little messy now because a lot of treatments coming down the pike can help you live a little bit longer, a little bit more comfortably, but are not ever intended to, say, fix or cure your illness. So mm. there's an increasing gray zone of treatments that might qualify from a palliative point of view, but don't from a hospice point of view for these reasons. So it gets really murky and it feeds into this, you gotta, that hospice is giving up because right. in some way you are, you're giving some choices up. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Can you kind of picture that? So the, the question I, I posed about uh, people's hesitation around invoking it sort of answers itself because it's, mm -hmm. it comes at the moment where you have to admit that, okay, you're, you're going to die from this thing and mm -hmm. it's no longer a story of how you're going to get better from the mm -hmm. cancer or whatever it is. That's right. Shoshana, did you have something you wanted to say there? Well, I just, I, I always uh, look at the kind of etymology of these things, hospice and hospitals and hospitality, you know, it's, it's, it's all about caregiving and how we care for people, how we care for each other, you know, through the entire arc of life. And we pay a lot of attention for how we care for our firstborn, for how we care for, for children, and very little for how we how we usher people out of life. And, you know, part of the project of this book was uh, knowing that there was this book, What to Expect When You're Expecting for New Parents, which has sold mm -hmm. like 500 million copies and every, every 
set of parents gets their newly minted copy. We wanted to create something like that, a stepwise approach to thinking about this experience for the other end of life. And, and hospice is a part of that. Yeah. So you mentioned, uh, BJ, that you were at the, the Zen hospice. Does that mm-hmm. suggest that you, you were, a, were you a Zen practitioner before mm. you came to it, or did, you, or did you just come as a hospice doctor who happened to land at that particular hospice? No, I came there more, more of the latter, Sam. Mm-hmm. I, I came there for uh, entranced by two things at Zen Hospital Project, which had started in 1987. And I know you've had a beautiful interview with Franco Soseski, mm-hmm. who was the founding executive director back in the 80s. I mean, a really remarkable little place. And it had closed down after Frank left and it was just reopening. And so I came there as a hospice doctor, as an agnostic hospice doctor who was broadly interested in spirituality or just philosophy, how we approach the truth, how we approach life. So I was interested in Buddhism and had studied it a little bit and found it, you know, irrefutable um, in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Didn't really see it as a religion, but more as a philosophy. And my agnosticism fit, I thought, pretty snugly within those confines. But I was really there as a hospice doc who, had, who was there, uh, who loved architecture. And this sweet little guest house, this Victorian, was sort of anything but a nursing home, anything but a hospital. And there was a sort of a belief or an observation that... Uh, bones of a place, the inanimate objects, the design, all of that could affect the experience. Of course it can. The beauty of a place, of course it can. So I was there for the house and I was there because Mm. they had a basis of care in volunteerism and in spirituality. And that seemed like a, a very interesting, perhaps a larger, better catchment for this subject than the sort of reductive medical model per se. Uh, Shoshana, do, do you have a background in meditation or any uh, spiritual practice that's informing your approach to this? Well, Sam, I largely learned to meditate from you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, have to, <laughs> I have to give you credit here. Oh, nice. uh, someone yeah. gifted me a, a subscription to Waking Up, and you, I, you know, I had dabbled in meditation before, and growing up in the Bay Area, you can't help but like osmotically be exposed to all of the 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 Buddhist activity around here, and you know we have Spirit Rock here, and mm. so I had a I had you know a yoga practice, and certainly I was interested, but really it wasn't until I started listen, having you in my ear that I started more religiously meditating. And but I'd just say that you know for my for me the death of my father was such a tectonic shift for me. And it it so rattled me to the core that I did turn to various different spiritual guides and 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 faiths. I I certainly turned back to my Jewish community, and I listened to a lot of you know very wise teachers who grapple with loss and death and grief in a in a way that I think is very useful to me. The the Tibetan practice of meditating on death five times a day, I think it is, is really right, is, is that you should be, you should keep death close because of course it is everywhere and we are dying all the time. And having that, having that inform how you live, it, it, 
that has changed my life. That has mm-hmm. brought more urgency to my life. It has brought much more connection, more presence. And so I think that's all very useful. Yeah, yeah. Well, more or less every spiritual tradition recommends that we keep death in mind. And, um, you know, it's the impermanence of life that motivates most philosophical reflection or deliberate practice that's aimed at wisdom. But it's always seemed to me that there's a paradox or a a seeming paradox between the kind of two modes of response to this reflection. I mean, there's the there's the mode in which we can we can really you know seize the day with a sense of urgency and um, you know follow a sort of carpe diem piece of advice, which just alone can be a kind of um, just a further adumbration of our attachment to things and, and clinging to things. I mean, you know, mm. there's no bucket list, however fully accomplished, that's the same as recognizing a quality of mind that just doesn't cling to experience and, and to life itself. And so there's, I think there's this potential trade-off and confusion between the urgency of trying to get the most out of life, which, I, again, there's a lot to be said for that, but that's distinct between simply recognizing that this moment is already enough, right? And I, I think more and more we, you know, we want, I mean, certainly any, anyone with a meditation practice will find this familiar. We want a mind that is at peace with experience, whatever it is, and is, in, is at peace with the reality that we're at bottom, we're not really in control of anything. And it's the these kind of nested illusions of control that we sort of fight our way beyond as we confront our and others' mortality. So I'm wondering if you, if either of you have any kind of reaction to that, because I, in my own life, I, I notice that I I really am running both programs. I mean, there are many things I, I do because I want to do them, and I you know I have vacations planned and projects planned, and there is a sort of bucket list mode of prioritizing things that, you know, on their face seem like good and enjoyable uses of time. And um, I wouldn't say that that is a waste of time, but if you are living with the the illusion that your happiness is going to be secured, you know, only when you, you know, arrive at the peak of all these, of all these mountains that you're, you're planning to climb, you seem guaranteed to be disappointed. And you then know, there's sort of a figure ground reversal that that needs to be accomplished, where you can recognize, well, it's possible to be already happy before anything happens, before the vacation actually arrives. It's only worked out for me in continually kind of being buffeted back and forth between those two modes and, and recognizing that one needs to supersede the other for me. Yeah, oh, Sam, I really, you're, you're really putting to something really important here. And I think in some ways, Shosh and I, you know the book in some ways as a be- as a beginner's treatise or you know we mostly you know sort of suggest or come up to find our way to oh boy okay time is finite my time is finite on this planet and okay let's take life seriously let's figure out what let it let it distill what we care about and let's pursue those things that we care about something really beautiful and wonderful about that. One of the things, if we were going to write like an intermediate guide, 
I think we'd spend more time on, you know, like a second book, like you know, squaring the limits of that approach along with like the limits of the self, you know. And if you just stay in yourself all the time, you're only mm. going to get so far. That would probably be the sort of second big book. But you're right on. I think, and I, as I've kind of gone down this road myself or in my work, I am increasingly tuned into, and, and it's always a dynamic, just as you're saying, Sam, of this other piece of what, you know, of learning to be okay with what already is. You know, front preload your happiness or your peace and then work from there. Don't this idea of hedging, you know, leveraging your current piece for some better piece or more happiness down the road. This kind of, I used to do this a lot with myself and I, I do it less and less, this sort of leveraging the present for some possible future. And so I think what you're pointing to is just perfect, Sam. It's, it's really, not one or the other. It's not being or doing. It's, it's really, I think the project ends up being cultivating the, the good judgment to pull on the right tool and to not see these as a dichotomy. It's not being versus doing. It's not you know, caring about achievement versus what, you know, it's not, these are false divides. You can do both. And I think over time, what you're really a mature person gets to is this sense of judgment of toggling between the two applying applying these approaches and these mindsets at the right time and holding it all loosely leaving room for things that you just don't understand and so there's some like perhaps like a unifying theory out there that we haven't kind of hit on just yet but you move between these valences and that's where so much of the action is that's where mm. you stay really i think very present with yourself in real time you can square the expectations of yourself and from others of you and of your life and the potential you have to make something with it with the idea that you know it's never going to be enough if you're really paying attention there's always more it's always a work in progress so yeah just i don't know that i'm saying anything novel there sam i think you spelled it out perfectly but that so much really is as far as i can see is the project yeah yeah well just the being doing opposition lends itself to being while doing, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, mm. really, you can run those two Amen. together. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's that great phrase, life is what happens while you're planning that vacation, right? Mm. I mean, we tend to live in any tense but the present. We, we live in the past and feel regret. We are planning for the future. I remember this, there's, I don't know if you ever saw that movie, Nomadland. Oh, uh, no, no. Oh, it's this wonderful movie with Frances McDormand. But there's a story. It's, it's basically about people who hit the road in, in vans and are, are unhoused and just, you know, just travel through life. And there's one scene in which they're all sitting around the fire at night in, in essentially the trailer park and telling stories of why they became nomads. And one woman says, you know, I was working in the corporate world for 20 years and my boss saved up for a boat, which he had parked in his driveway. And mm. he kept saying, you know, I just, I can't wait to retire and take this boat out and, and just set sail. And everything was dreaming about this future, this imagined future happiness that he was in pursuit of. 
And then, of course, he uh, got a terminal diagnosis while still at work and a very short window of time. And that boat never left the driveway. Hmm. And she says that was the moment that catalyzed her. And she was like, it's, you know, my life, I'm not waiting for my life to start. I'm going to start it now. And she got in the van and rode off into the sunset. And I think, you know, there's so much wisdom in so much of the conversations you have about this, about that illusory pursuit of some future happiness when really the moment that we have now is the most is the most voluminous opportunity we have for that. And I have to say there was a lot of lessons about that in caregiving for me. So when I was taking care of my father, you know, I really had to investigate the nature of time in a different way. I had to really synchronize to his time, which was very slow, a much slower metabolic rate than I'm certainly used to. I'm a really busy, full-time working person with two teenagers. And, and you know, we mostly live in, in, in chronos, that, you know, linear clock time of which there's never enough, right? The Stoic philosopher Seneca writes about the shortness of life, and you know he postulates that it it feels long if you know how to live it. You know that you can, if you if you find um, length in those moments, time can be elastic and can expand and contract depending on how we inhabit it. So you can either be kind of ravaged by by chronos and linear, linear time, and it can become very transactional. You know, we have all these, all these phrases about that time is money and you're wasting time. And time waits for no one. But, you know, when you are caregiving, you really have to slow time down and just be there. And there are real depths to plumb, I found there. You know, I would often just end up sitting on the couch with my father holding hands and there was uh, a universe of feeling there that I really hadn't had with my father before because we had had a very heady kind of relationship that was really built on the commerce of ideas and and just conversation. And, and suddenly he had no use for language, no use for hearing about my life and my accomplishments, but but just sitting and being with him and watching my kids play became this shift in how you inhabit time and feel time. And it, it, it's like there's that phrase, don't just sit there, do something, which, which gets inverted hmm. um, in the most lovely way when you're taking care of someone who needs quiet. And it, it turns into don't just do something, sit there. Yeah. So, okay, well, so we, we can, we're, we're really talking about both sides of this, but um, I think it's useful to acknowledge how different they are, even though. They both come to mind when we talk about death, and there's the the difference between being the one dying and being among the bereaved or soon to be bereaved, and they're just they're very different experiences. Uh, I, obviously, I can only talk about one of them, but it you know, BJ, you have seen both for years and years, and I, I can imagine you've seen hundreds, if not thousands, of people die and that many families and uh, circles of friends go through the bereavement process. I, I think we should cover any, you know, any side of it you want to, but perhaps we can start with, and this is sort of where your book 
starts uh, with advice for healthy people for whom death is still fairly hypothetical, right? I mean, they may have had someone close to them die at some point, but they're not dealing with it now, and, and life is, quote, normal, and the, you haven't been dragged into the um, kingdom of mortality, which happens the moment your day is now going to be spent at a hospital, you know, whether for your own illness or, or the illness of someone you love. So let's talk about normal life. What, what do you both advise people to, to do now? Well, Shosh, maybe I'll set us up here, if that's all right. And then we can, we can play together on this one too. I, I mean, I think a couple thoughts. You know, one is just to get to your, you know, the pretext of your question, Sam. It's, yeah, you could very easily and well make the argument when do we begin dying? You know, you could certainly, they were born uh, somewhere after our brains stopped developing, if they ever do. I, you know, pick a, but that, 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 that's an evasive answer. There is something different about when your horizon, you know, is in sight. When you have, when you know the thing that's going to end your life, it's not. It's just, it's more of a spectrum as you move from abstraction to reality. But there are meaningful differences from someone who's at the end stages of an illness and dying at any moment from someone who's walking around talking and otherwise in good health per se, etc. So your question alone brings up a lot of good points. But let's just hold that there's a difference between sort of the acute or near-term dying phase and the rest of life. And you see that in the body. You know, one, you know, one of our chapters is on final days when, when things, rules of thumb that guide you through the rest of life no longer really apply. You know, food and water goes from something of you know, sustenance to something that actually can hurt you, for example. So there's some other examples in the world of physiology. But so but let's take so so that's all behind your question but let's get to the to your question so you know w- one of the reasons why and by the way let's give Shosh some credit it was her idea to write this book and it was a terrifying prospect but we, we both it was an easy thing for me to say yes to because we both knew there were some basic things that could be covered and we could level set for our readers and avoid a lot of unnecessary suffering and it was a also a joy to write with Shosh in so many ways as a as a layperson, as a caregiver, as a design thinker, not as a clinician. So just wanted to get that out there too. So, you know, and I'll cut to you, Shosh, in a second, because a lot of your work was some of those early chapters. But just to say, you know, the reasons to write a book, the read like this, the reasons to read a book like this are because while you're early in life, we you know, the thesis is don't wait till that diagnosis to realize you're mortal. If you can, you know, invite the truth of death into your life earlier and you'll receive its lessons. And on practical terms, there are some things any of us can do early in life that will prepare us for our eventual death in some real practical ways. So one thing to realize is our healthcare system, the default settings of the healthcare system are to put you on machines, take you to ICU, do everything humanly possible to keep your heart beating. And in, in the world of medicine, again, a very reductive, very powerful, but very reductive lens onto, onto life basically holds that if you got a heartbeat, you're alive, essentially. There's some brain activity, you're alive. Most of us wouldn't consider that living by some definition. 
But that's the healthcare definition. So if you don't do, say, an advanced directive, you run the risk of just falling down the default path of medicine and ending up in the situations you probably don't want to be in or you might not want to be in. So there's a, there's a big reason to think about it so you can get the sort of death that suits you. Another reason, of course, is to prepare for it so that it's kind of one of the kindest things you can do for your family and friends, people who will live on after you. If you've stated your wishes, if you've made it clear how you want to go out, and then you take so much guesswork out of the people who will survive you and you can ease their grief. But the third reason to do all this stuff, I think it's the best or the biggest or something like that, is you know, what we've touched on. Once you realize you will die at some point, you, in a sense, can start really living. And I have seen that play out a zillion times over in my own life and in others. And so, so that's the setup. That's why that's why prepare. Otherwise, gosh, you'd just say, people have been dying forever. It's a natural thing. When my turn to die, I'll die and I'll be, you know, fine. Why do I need a book to tell us about this? Well, we need a book to tell us about this because we've invented structures and systems that make certain inevitabilities in life a little inhospitable and shaky and counterintuitive. Mm. So anyway, over to you, Shosh, maybe on some of the advanced planning and other things. Sure. Well, is is that I just want to make sure we're answering your question here, Sam. Yeah, is yeah. that really it about like how you prepare yourself for this experience and think about it further upstream? Yeah, it's just I think it's natural for people who are healthy, right? And for, for whom it's just there's nothing bad on this front has happened yet to want to use that time to think about everything other than planning for the inevitable, even if they they could pay lip service to the the understanding that it is inevitable. It's just you know there there are many people who who don't have wills, and even if you have a will, that really doesn't quite get at every aspect of planning you deal with in your book. And again, the, the sort of the checklist aspect of this I think is best delivered by your book, not so much by audio. But I think some of the big points are worth talking about. For instance, the the advanced directive. I love your your take on it as well, Shoshana. But I'm also wondering if the physician's eye view of death, you know, having seen many many people die, could give us some wisdom as to you know what's worth wanting with respect to resuscitation or not, etc. Mm. Well, I'm definitely going to hand that one over to BJ, but I'll just say from my perspective in in writing the book and talking to hundreds of people about how to kind of grapple with this experience. You know, we, we, it's so taboo in our culture and you're absolutely right. We don't want to think about it. We don't talk about it. We don't have conversations about it. We have a colleague, Jessica Zitter, who's a palliative care doc and an ER doc, and she, she actually wants to institute death ed in schools as a component of, of, of you know, or as a counterpart to sex mm -hmm. ed, because we really do think that it should be just a conversation that we have throughout life. And there are so many different touch points throughout life when it's appropriate, like when your kid goes and becomes a driver and takes his driver's test or her driver test and has to choose whether or not they want to become an organ donor. Mm. You know, uh, great opportunity to start talking about, you know, yes, there is a possibility that when you get behind that wheel, you you will get in an accident. And let's think about you know what you might what you might offer the world 
in a very generous way if that happens. So there's lots, so many opening gambits throughout life when you can have this conversation. But I'll just say that there are a couple of different things we talk about in the book. And one is the kind of material mess that we accumulate in life and how to deal with that. Because of course, you hand all of that down to the people who you love. And it's a lot. And there's this, there's this great Swedish notion of, of death cleaning, that as you get older, you should you know, go through your, your material world and decide you know, what, what you need and what you can give up because you don't want to pass that along. You don't want to pass that mess along. It's a lot to get through for the people you love. And then there's, of course, the emotional mess that we create in life as human beings, which is much more complicated. But that is where the meat is, is, is thinking about uh, your relationships and whether or not you have resolved, you know, old disputes, you know, people in your life, what do they need to hear from you? You know, what, how are you, how are you feeding and watering your relationships throughout life? And, you know, Ira Bayak, another palliative care physician who we interviewed for this book, has this beautiful framework of saying the four things that matter most at the end of life. And those things are, please forgive me, I forgive you, thank you, and I love you. And you know, he says that just saying those things can really unburden the people around you in feeling like they have They've come to terms with letting you go and feeling resolved about that. And, you know, we actually asked him, Ira, you know, it's been 10 years since you wrote that book. Is there, is there anything else you'd add to that list? And he said, you know, actually there is, I, I talked to 60-year-old men who are still carrying around the wish that their dead fathers had said to them, I'm so proud of you. Mm. And, you know, so... I've really built that into the way that I raise my kids, just taking every opportunity to, to tell them how proud of them I am. And, you know, I think we just, we, again, just, uh, you know, returning to this moment is the only moment that we can be sure of, um, knowing that you are expressing the things that you need to express. And, and then all the paperwork stuff, you're right, Sam, we cover off in the book. We actually have this notion of a when I die file, which has like 20 things in it that you, that you want to put in there. And that can be in a shoebox or a file or you know, on the cloud, wherever. But you know, it's a place where your family can go to find all of the logistical stuff that just traps people up when they're in the thick of grief and they can't even think straight. And they just need very clear instructions for for how to shut down a life. BJ, mm. before you give us the um, DNR particulars, I forget if you mentioned this in the book. Do we know the statistics on just what percentage of people die suddenly and bypass any need for advice around how to navigate a terminal illness? I mean, they're just, I guess this is more or less, you know, cardiac events and accidents we're talking about here, but uh, do we know what, what the percentages are? The, the data that I've seen referenced, I have to say, I haven't chased it down to its source, but the data I've seen referenced around your question, Sam, is, and it mirrors my kind of own experience in my practice, but you know, 
maybe 10 to 20% of people can look forward to that sort of spontaneous death where they're, you know, fully alive one moment and mm. then whammo, gone. And there's not much in between space. And that number is shrinking in part due to the advances of medicine. We're able to keep people alive. Myself is one of them, you know, is one of them. We can keep folks alive, but not unscathed. And so a lot of people now, a lot of illnesses that were immediately terminal nowadays are chronic, hmm. at least for many years. So another thing that the book steps into or our time steps into is this moment where science and medical science has advanced. And it's, you know, it's smeared or protracted this dying phase. And that has lots of consequences. So for good and for ill, we, we, we live with this thing that will cause our death oftentimes for many years. And so more and more of us are dying from chronic illness. That will very likely, it is right now very likely the reason, the way you or I will die. And that number is growing mm. as the population ages. So these issues are becoming more and more important or powerful. And in the coming decades, they will continue to swell. Aging, dying is going to be increasingly in our face because of the population dynamics. Yeah, yeah. So with that, another sort of reason to pay attention to this stuff now, you know, and as Shosh, as you're talking, I'm reminded too of one of the joys of, of this work that we did together or do together, you know, is there's also just the magic like you're doing with us today, Sam, of just talking about these things. And you have done such a beautiful job before us too. I mean, this subject is not a stranger on your, on your work. And that's beautiful. Just, it's just the basic math of pulling things out of a closet. And, you know, one thing I kind of want to get out there, I'm going around here nonlinearly, but, you know, as you're referencing a moment ago about there are some important differences between living and dying. And I'll just say, I'll jump to a, what feels to me like really good news and a good news observation in a lot of this is that a lot of the, what feel like neurosing around regret and getting it right and learning how to heed or pay attention or quiet our critic and you know, all the things that we kind of frantically do to ourselves and to each other when we have this sort of open-ended life in front of us. In some ways, that's the hard part. That's, you know, I wouldn't, but, but by the time someone is actually dying, you know, in their final days and weeks, and they've gotten a taste of watching their body fall apart bit by bit, and dying in some ways has already begun. They've already said a lot of goodbyes. When you're kind of shaken down by that, that chronic process, you know, one of the things that often goes, especially if you have some loving support around you, are, you know, I don't hear a lot of people on their deathbeds wailing about regrets, actually. I hear a lot mm. of folks at the time of diagnosis wailing about regret. And that's an important difference. So I just mm. want to kind of note that there's some good news here that I think in some ways living is the harder part <laughs> uh, or some ways more complicated. Dying can really bring us down to the essentials and distill life and make it very obvious in some ways. So mm. let that be good news. That's interesting. But meanwhile, yeah. I mean, yeah. I've actually never heard that point made, and it's um, it seems intuitively right. Mm. Do you have an explanation for it? Well, I don't per se that not a scientific one, but just anecdotal from what I observe in myself and others. You know that frantic those these these minds of ours these wow outrageously powerful tools that 
God or nature or creation has given us, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure we know how to use them wisely. They're, and so they're just, you know, all over the place, reaching for meanings, narratives, making stuff up, tearing things down. I mean, they're just a, it's a mm. wild place. And I think an open-ended life that we know could end at any moment, you know, we have this weird knowledge compared to perhaps the rest of the animal kingdom where we, we have to find our way to loving life, cognizant of losing it all the time. And it's a real pickle. And so when death is this, you know, it's like a tent that's got only one pole in the ground. It's flailing around in the wind. It's unnerving in a lot of ways. And it's really hard to know what to do with our time and to make sense of all this. Whereas when that becomes that abstraction, like we were saying earlier, gets more and more real, more and more obvious. When our bodies are showing us that they're, no matter what our minds want them to do, they're going down or they're shutting down or whatever it is. This is the truth, the mega truth, unvarnished by our, our mentation on it, uh, becomes clearer and clearer. That can be very painful. Some Buddhist scholars said something about, you know, you know, that fear is a sort of normal response of getting closer to the truth or something like that. But so is the peace because there's something about, and perhaps all of us can realize in our lives, you know, that fear that you finally faced or that thing that you had imagined was so horrifying when you finally actually do it, it very often is not as horrifying as you're imagining. I think between our negative biases, these abstractions, this wildness, our imaginations can't tend to make, left to their own devices, tend to complicate things tend to make things probably more negative or more scary than they actually are when you're actually living with them. So, I mean, that's, that's my sense, that gist sense, Sam. Mm -hmm. But I'd be curious. I wonder if you have any reflection on that, if you have a sense of why that might be. Well, yeah, I think it does relate to the, very directly to what your mind is doing or likely to do in each one of those circumstances. And yeah, when, when life is normal or nearly normal or or it was normal 5 minutes ago but now you have some terrifying diagnosis it it's probably more natural to think about all the things you wish you had done differently mm-hmm. all the things you might yet do if only you can sort out this problem and you know kind of the, the bargaining with mm-hmm. with death at that point but i can imagine that once you're Deeper into the process, and have really passed the point of no return, so that you know you're you're not going to get out of this hospital, or you're not going to get out of this bed you're in. You know, you're if you're upstairs in your house, you're not going to go downstairs again. Mm. Once those transition points have been passed, then I, I can imagine it's natural not to be spinning out about you know all the stuff you wish you had done differently in your career or you know in these mm-hmm. principal relationships i mean it's just it's much more trimmed down and focused to the rhythm of the day and the hour mm-hmm. and there's also just something bizarre about what happens when i mean I, i've only been in the hospital for a significant period once uh for myself and then I, then you know for others close to me i've, I've been there as a as a family member but just being hospitalized for a week can, uh, I, mean, I was in my early to mid-20s, I was hospitalized, I think, for eight days with pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And 
I realized with alarm at, at one point, like, you know, like on day six or seven, I realized that I had just forgotten that I was ever going to get out of there. Like there the, the, the was almost no part of me that was busy getting out of the hospital. I had just, I had basically been fully institutionalized and was just, you know, I mean, I was <laughs> like, the, the, like none of my life energy was purposed toward actually, you know, getting better and getting on with my life. I had just sunk so deeply into the rhythm of, of being hospitalized and, you know, having IV Bactrim put into me. And so it's just, it's easy to just have your mind take the form of whatever uh, seems to be happening. And I, could, I, I can imagine that the experience of dying more or less uh, obliterates everything else that was normal, mm-hmm. uh, or, or it certainly could for many people. Yeah. I mean, I love that ex- example too. And also kind of, as you're talking, you make me think about the difference between ad- adapting and acceptance, say. I think, like you are saying earlier, bargaining and we can adapt. Humans are amazing species this way. You know, we love limitations are very galvanizing for us. We can, we can work around, work through, remake all sorts of ways. And adaptation is a powerful, wonderful human capacity or natural capacity, but it also has its limits. And until you are so sort of broken, you got to be brought to your knees to realize there's no spinning this. You're going to spin this in some way. You're not going to learn some lesson and go forward differently, or you might, but not for long. But eventually you come to acceptance. And there's a really sweet valley on the far side of that mountain where everything is just, it just is. You know, you can have feelings about it. You can poke at it, you can whatever, but it just undeniably just is the, it is what it is. It seems like a silly phrase, but there's some wisdom in it, I think. So, but also, so, so that's happening and you're getting, you're finding a way by choice or by force to acceptance to some, some, I don't like these words because they sound negative or weak, but submit, you know, submission, submitting to it, kneeling before it. So that's something very powerful and that will happen. There's a natural process there, but not before we angst about it a lot. And then, I want to bring up another point as a response to sort of why things are the way they are these days. It's another reason why Shosh and I wrote this book is to kind of give some new language to this time of life. Man, we don't do each or each we don't do each other or ourselves any favors with some of the word choice we choose around illness and death. You know, the, the classic stuff. You hear it all the time as someone succumbed to illness or they failed treatment, you know. You know, lost the battle. I mean, geez Louise. So that's another thing. Never mind the intrapersonal processes and developments over life, but the interpersonal and structural things, the language we throw around this stuff. Of course, we're terrified of it. Of course, we don't want to choose hospice because then we look like weak, weaklings. We're giving up, et cetera, et cetera. So that's another reason I think we've kept dying harder, much harder than it needs to be. We've put all this garb on it, and it ain't pretty garb. I think that at best is to help us kind of mobilize against it. You know, we love finding an enemy to go to war with it, but this war we ain't, we're not going to win. And that little detail, <laughs> it's kind of an important detail. Uh, we should not be embarrassed for dying. Jesus, we should not be ashamed to be dying. Mm-hmm. And yet many people are for all these reasons. So 
another answer to your question of why we're here, how we are, where we are. Yeah, so perhaps you can you can just reflect on the the stark choice of whether or not to resuscitate and hmm. just how people need to think about that in advance and and what the doctor's eye view would suggest if you can suggest any kind of generic advice for how to think about that. Hmm. Yeah, so an advanced directive, also known as a living will, is a form. All states have an advanced directive form, but they don't need to be state-specific. There are also commercial products out there. It's the same basic content, but put differently. So there are various versions on this theme. But, it, but an advanced directive is this thing that you lay down your wishes for this eventuality uh, someday if you should find yourself in a hospital not able to say for yourself. Very important detail. If you can't communicate in real time at this some eventuality down the road, well, you can put your wishes in this advanced directive so people don't have to guess, so we know what you'd want. We can cut to some of the trouble with these forms, but let's start with where they're helpful. So well, the, the content, one way or another, has to do, generally speaking, with a few different things or a few basic components. So one would be this code status. You, you mentioned a moment ago, Sam, DNR, which stands for do not resuscitate. By the way, there's a movement in some hospitals and some clinicians um, to change that language from the negative to a positive instead of do not resuscitate, which can sound a little, I don't know, harsh, like, you know, let the sucker die. It's like more like allow natural death, A-N-D. Mm. So you might run into that language, but the more common parlance is for sure DNR. So uh, one of the things you can stipulate is, you know, when this form might be summoned, which is often, again, it's not, you know, if you're walking around, if you can say for yourself, if you're coppice mentis, it, the doctor will just ask you what kind of care you want. You'll talk it out. Um, this is, again, when you can't communicate for yourself. And when something really bad is going down, in some ways, like if you're dying, is really the setup question. If you are dying, do you want doctors to rush in with you know, electric shocks, breathing machines, all this gear, very intensive, very invasive, but which might help you continue to live. Again, as we were saying earlier, might help you continue to have a pulse, essentially. And so certain times of life, right, where, you know, I was resuscitated after my injuries. I'm very glad I was, you know, but if I had been injured in the setting of advanced cancer, well, important detail is if you're living with an advanced cancer, the late stages of heart disease or end organ failure, if you're dying, the, the chances of resuscitating you successfully approach zero. So that's kind of a really important detail, you know? So anyway, back to what you can stipulate as form. Well, you can say, do not resuscitate, or you can say full code, which is do everything, you know, give me the breathing, everything. I, you know, I was full code by default back when I was 19. So that's one big thing. Is that's how to respond to cardiac death. Machines, no machines. So that's, that's one stipulation, one big point component. And by the way, all your answers to these kinds of questions, of course, can change over the course of your life as you develop, as your you know, perspective shifts. The idea of allowing nature to take its course may be very appealing to someone later in life versus younger in life, they may be very interested in interventions. Mm. Great, great. So 
you know, get in the habit of revisiting your advanced directive annually or every time there's a big moment in your life to make sure it's still relevant. You can change your mind a zillion times over. Simply tear up the form and write a new one. Make sure to communicate it with your family and your doctors, et cetera. So, but back to the form itself, the, the content. So that's DNR code status kind of stuff, full code. Another piece of the puzzle would be a big one. And this is, the, oh, this is a big one, is food and fluids. As I referenced earlier, at the end of life, there comes a time where actually you can do harm with food and fluids. And that's a really important detail because otherwise, of course, yeah, give me food, give me fluids. I don't want to starve to death, of course. Well, there comes a time, like I say, where food can hurt. A dying body uh, will reject food. And if you pour fluids into someone who's trying to die, those fluids will often end up places where it shouldn't be and you cause pain. So it's not a small question, but it's very counterintuitive until you've really talked it out. So on this advanced directive, you can stipulate if you want artificial nutrition and hydration, which is generally speaking very often not a good idea, except in certain circumstances that are uh, reversible or to bypass a, like a swallowing problem. You know, So none of the answers I'm kind of breezing past here is absolute. There's no right answer to these questions. It's sort of right for you. But so, those are, so that's some of the content of an advanced directive. Mm. Perhaps the most single most important question you'll find in advanced directive is, who do you want to be your healthcare proxy? Or the same, that, that term is also uh, the durable power of attorney for healthcare or your healthcare agent. This is probably the most important piece of this form. Because again, remember the setup for this form is you're pr- projecting yourself into some future state and trying to guess what kind of care you would want. Obviously, that's a little tricky. So, really, if you're going to do one thing, name that person whom you deputize to make decisions on your behalf if you can't. Mm-hmm. So if that person, and it's not an honorific, make, you know, make sure to choose someone who can handle that role. Sometimes it's not the spouse because that person may just be too bereft to be making thoughtful decisions. But anyway, whoever it is for you, and you can name multiple people, that's probably the most important thing you can do. So when, if, if and when you're in these shoes, the doctor knows who to talk to, a, a fighting family or people showing up with conflicting ideas. If you've named your proxy, when we get, then we know who makes the decisions. And then that person can make real-time decisions in conversation with the doctor, knowing you and the member, or this is decisions on your behalf. So naming that person and staying in communication with them over time so they know what you want. That's really probably the key piece of this form. Hmm. I will say one more thing real quick on these forms. These forms, sometimes they can be really, really helpful to have. There's also some troubling data to show you that a lot of these forms, even if you have them, don't necessarily affect your care. Either doctors don't listen to them or they have someone shows up with two different advanced directive forms that are in conflict or a family is begging the doctor to do something different from the advanced directive. All sorts of reasons why Mm -hmm. these things go unheeded. but. I still recommend you doing them because they can be very helpful, including for this idea as a conversation starter, this reason to talk things through with people you love. That's probably its most important feature. Mm. Well, I think the concern that many people have is that if they don't err on the side of A&D or DNR, there's the prospect of spending some harrowing amount of time 
you know, in a in a vegetative state or, you know, just with with quality of life that is objectively awful, but one has effectively become a, a prisoner of the the machines and could languish there. Is that how how easy is that fate to avoid? And and what is is there more than this uh, kind of code decision so as to empower people to avoid it? Yeah. Well, if you know you never want to be on life uh, sustaining, you know, gizmos. If you never want to be in an ICU on a breathing machine, or you never want to receive defibrillation, you know, electric shocks to your heart, et cetera, or dialysis for kidneys or whatever yeah. it is. Well, if, well, you know, so if, just just to be clear, I think many people would, would want to receive those things if it amounts to a, a rebooting of life of the sort that you experienced at 19, right? Mm -hmm. You were resuscitated and now you're here. Right. So one wouldn't want to foreclose that possibility. But if, if that's not in the cards and you're just getting bombarded with life-saving technology only to put you in a situation which then, because of the legality around euthanasia or consent, mm -hmm. finds you a kind of prisoner of you know, having, you know, having a heartbeat, but not much else, mm -hmm. that's the, I think that's the thing that scares some people. Yeah, many people. Yeah. You're right on about that. And just to set it up a little bit, like if you think of these things for yourself in pretty absolute terms, like under no circumstances would I want that kind of intervention, or on the other hand, under every circumstance, I want everything throw throw the kitchen sink at me, period. If you if you're on these sort of absolute sides of the spectrum, then it's very clear. Most of us, to your point, Sam, are in this great gray zone where, yeah, we'd want those things to a point. So what you do here in this situation to kind of cover this huge swath of gray is this is where your healthcare proxy, this person that you name can be so important. And you can write into the, into the living will or advanced directive, like, for example, yes, I'd like to give all interventions a try, but in communication with the doctors, if my proxy after, you could say after one week or after three days, or just leave it open-ended. You know, with daily check-ins with the physician, when it becomes unlikely that I would be able to get off these machines, then at that point, please, you know, withdraw life-sustaining treatment. The you know, and the veritable pull the plug. Mm. So you can deputize a person to move with the doctor in real time to use their judgment of you know playing the odds, and usually within. A week or so in an ICU, so much, you know, it's minute by minute, and there's so much data over the course of a week, you can generally get a really good sense of where things are going. Now, does medicine understand everything? Do we know, you know, are there these ideas that people have been in comas for years and then wake up? You know, okay, this does happen. So, you know, medicine is not, is not God. Playing the numbers and averages, medicine has seen a lot of things, and you can usually make some pretty darn good decisions this way. So that's my answer to your question, mm. Sam, is, is make your wishes known of sort of, of how tolerant of the gray zones you are, talk that out with your proxy, and your proxy can, together with the doctor will help make this decision right. in real time. Right. Do either of you have insider tips for dealing with doctors and I guess, navigating a hospital. As consumers of, of these services, it can be fairly intimidating. And I'm, I'm always amazed at, at how 
you know, unpleasant it can be even in the best possible circumstance. I mean, you know, there, are, there are great doctors I and mean, certainly great surgeons who have terrible bedside manners, right? I mean, it's just they're certainly not picked for that skill of being mm. uh, empathic and communicative in, in, the, in the moments that most require it. And so it's, it's just people don't understand how hospitals actually work. There's an obvious difference between a teaching hospital and uh, a non-teaching one, so that the prospect of having someone doing a procedure for the first time, you know, on you or your loved one is something that many of us would just want to reject out of hand. So I guess, again, your book has more detail than we can cover here, but what what comes to mind is uh, something that you would want everyone to know navigating this for the first time? Hmm. Yeah. Josh, you want to jump in there? Sure. And BJ, you're going to have a totally different insider perspective on mm. this, but I think it's useful to have both perspectives from you know the lay person and family member and the and the doctor themselves. So we do we Sam we go into great detail about how to interface with healthcare, how to interface with the hospital setting, how you know what to think about, what to pack in your bag when you go to the hospital, and then. Some very, you know, kind of zoomed in instruction on like showing up to an appointment, ready to record it so that you actually have a record of it later. Because oftentimes when you're in that room with a doctor and you're being told really critical information, the doctor, as you said, like doctors don't necessarily, they're not necessarily trained in communication. They're trained in their craft, which is medicine. And so there can be a lot of jargon. There can be, you know, very complex procedural things that, that people just don't understand. Oftentimes people don't speak English as a first language. So coming ready to record that conversation so that you can go through it later and ask any questions that you need to you know, there's this, there's also this kind of trance-like state that we go into when we're hearing hard information. Our brain just doesn't want to process it. And so it shuts down a bit. So having that recording is really important. The idea of, uh, of limiting your questions for a doctor. So, you know, doctors have very limited time that they can spend with you. They're making rounds. Show up with three questions rather than 20. And it's guaranteed that you will get a more comprehensive and more informative and more useful answer from for those three questions than if you kind of spray and pray with 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 20 questions mm. and overwhelm the team you know there's some really interesting things about patient rights and uh what you can expect from doctors that people just don't know you know we just hand ourselves over to doctors like this you know, that they are gods and they will determine our care and our course of treatment. But you have so many rights as a patient. And BJ and I actually wrote about this in an op-ed for the New York Times about a woman, a patient of BJ's who was suffering with cancer, and she did not want to know what her prognosis was. In other words, she she knew that her time was probably limited, but she didn't want to live as though her time was limited. She wanted to live feeling free and feeling like she she didn't have a the clock ticking. And so her husband actually came up with a whole framework of, you know, what we can say to doctors about what we do and do not want to know. 
about our prognosis. And, you know, I think we just need to remember that we can refuse any treatment. We do not have to accept treatment. There's so many different things about being a person moving through this system where we can feel disempowered. And so in the book, we really try to give people a sense of the choices that they have, the agency that they can take, making sure you have somebody with you by your side who can advocate for you. That's really important. And and we have so many stories in the book of of the dynamism of this too. Like these these choices shift all the time. I mean, we exist in relationships. So there's this great story from a colleague of BJ's, Rebecca Sudor, about talking to her grandparents about her grandfather's choices at the end of life. And it comes time for that conversation. And because Rebecca is a professional at this, she, she sits down with them formally and says, you know, Grandpa, I'd love to hear what, how you'd like the rest of your life to go. Like, what does quality of life mean to you? And do you want a medical intervention? And he said, you know, Rebecca, I've had such a good life. I've had a very fulfilling relationship with your mother. I, you know, I'm 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 ready to go when it comes to be my time. No heroics, please don't pump my chest. I just just let me go. And she turned to her grandmother and said, "Grandma, did you hear what dad said? What grandpa said?" And her grandmother said, "Yes, I did." And she said, "Well, how do you feel about it?" And her grandmother said, "Nope. I don't like it at all." And she said, well, well, how would you change it? And she said, well, if they can extend his life for just one minute, that's worthwhile to me. I just want to have him here for as long as possible. I'm pretty and, sure I, I've identified the person who should not have the power of attorney. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, so often it's not the person who cares about you most, right? Because they're clouded by their care. And so she turned back to her grandfather and said, you know, you heard what grandma said. What do you think? And he said, whatever she wants. Um, so again, you know, hmm. our, our choices really can shift because what other people want, what the people we love want may be more important to us hmm. than what we want. Yeah. Hmm. So should I jump in there? Please. I, it's so fun talking again. I haven't, you know, I haven't thought through those so tactics in a while, and they're so good. So I don't know, Sam. My, my maybe I don't have much to add to Shosh's list, really, except to say a couple things. But really highlighting Shosh's point about saying no to treatment is really, really important. A patient can't demand any particular treatment. Um, that's the doctor's purview, and their license hinges on their, you know, they have to make decisions a little differently. So you can't demand a certain treatment from your doctor, but you can always say no to it. And there you might bump into a doctor who has moral misgivings, who feels for deeply religious purposes, believes you should do one thing or another. I, I don't know. You will bump into personalities, of course, underneath the white coats. But no matter how intimidated you might feel, and boy, there's so much to talk about with healthcare. Oof. But for now, I'll just say, you know, don't be intimidated. Remember, you can always say no to care. So back to what you were saying a moment ago, Sam, about those situations where no matter what your advanced directive says and in these gray zones, you end up on breathing machines or with some version of life that you no longer want. You know, if 
if for some reason you end up surviving in a way that you never would have wanted to, and your loved ones know this, they can on your behalf say no to further treatments. And you can always get out of the way of death. You know, the next infection that comes, don't treat it. Just support them symptomatically. Death will come. It may take a little time, but not long. If you're on a breathing machine and not moving, skin breakdown, nutritional things, other things. So if even just know that if you get stuck, you can always say no more to medical treatment and just support someone through and get out of the way of death. I think that's an important sort of fail-safe to understand. But I want to say something more structurally on top of Shosh's tactics here is just remember, I mean, medicine, I, I am a big critic of our healthcare system. Again, we could all talk about this for a long time, but I also think we have to remember that medicine is filled with outrageously devoted people. People go into debt and study for years just for the privilege of caring for another human being. I mean, it is stunning. And I'm reminded of this not infrequently as much as I'm reminded of the other side of medicine too. But it's a good, as your patients, a good reminder that somewhere underneath that crappy bedside manner or the doctor who's too busy to listen, whatever else, is a person who likely pursued this work for very beautiful reasons. Mm. But sadly, the system is a meat grinder and clinicians struggle with it as much perhaps or differently than patients. It's a mess. So just that's a nice way in. Start from that understanding. You, you might bump into all sorts of crispy docs who are probably burnt out, but you don't owe them anything. So don't be afraid to shop around for mm. a, a different physician. It's, some, it's very poignant, but it's also a little sad. Um, I, I run into a lot of patients who don't want to be doing what they're doing, but they didn't want to disappoint their doctor. It's kind of sweet. Mm. But dear doctors there, this is a service. They're there to serve you and your wishes, not the other way around. And as Shosha's saying, we're not really trained to listen. We're not really trained to communicate. We're not trained to evince personality. In some ways, personality gets in the way. Medicine decided a hundred plus years ago to focus on diseases, not the people living with diseases. And, that's, and you'll feel that. So take the bull by the horns, as it were, and tell your doctor about who you are. If you want to be something other than generic patient X, make sure you reveal yourself to that person. Find a way to be known as a person, as a personality. That will likely be on you to present, but do so. That will help the doctor understand you, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. One more thing, can I throw in one more th sure. comment? This shows was mentioning earlier, uh, loved ones, friends, family, getting help, getting support. None of us goes through these things alone. And it is a strong move to have pull in help where you can with friends and family, coming to appointments with you if possible, et cetera. But we got to say there's a plenty of people in this world who are alone. And perhaps it's extra important. We write a little bit about this in the book where Maybe you don't have family, or maybe a family that you're disconnected from by choice or otherwise. You know, this is where it becomes perhaps increasingly or ex exceedingly important to think about other services in the mix, palliative care, as we've been talking, hospice if appropriate, home health. But you know, on the outside of medicine too, just on the periphery are things like doulas and patient navigators, peer support. One way or another, find whether for hire or through blood or through choice, find people to share this experience with, not just to get ideas and bounce things off of, 
but to get that invaluable emotional, existential, spiritual support underneath all this stuff. I mean, this is Shoshin, my friend, this woman named Sonia Dolan, who's uh, helped us with the book. Sonia and I started a little business online counseling people, essentially not becoming their doctor, but counseling people to how to use their doctor. So mm. I just mentioned that there are services out there that can help you if you are all, all alone in this one way or another. So um, one of the things that came to mind when you talked about the um, prospect of, of just letting death take its course, I'm wondering whether if in every case or most cases, that is actually the, the most compassionate way to die that's available, or is that just dictated by the, the taboos around assisted suicide and euthanasia and the, the actual hastening of death based on um, you know, re- re- religious convictions or the, or the remnants of religious convictions that have been enshrined in our, in our laws. This connects with the question of pain and you know, pain versus suffering. You know, is there daylight between those two things? And in, insofar as there is, how can modern pharmacology help us find that daylight? Well, so I guess, I guess the question for you, BJ, is what can people expect, what's reasonable to expect around the issue of pain and, and its control at the end of life? How good are we at doing that? And um, if uh, assisted suicide or ending life more or less deliberately becomes the, the, the only truly compassionate outcome, what is available there and, when, and what determines what's available? So I think we touched on this earlier, but it is, I think it's important or helpful to say out loud and remember that dying is a natural act. Every living thing dies, always has. This is something on some level that our bodies know how to do. Again, like we've talked, we've, we've made that truth a little bit more and more distant to mm. some consequence, but it is still true. So know that, rely on that. Okay, so you will, you will make your way to your death. You will. You will find your way. Now, there are ranges of experiences one might have along the way, of course. And even if you are choosing to forego medical treatments or medical treatments just don't have much to offer you anymore, there's always something that we can do as fellow human beings, especially with a prescription pad. So I've met a lot of people who say they want to have a conscious death. They don't want to be drugged up. And it sort of mirrors the, like Shosh was saying earlier, so about childbirth. A lot of people go in thinking, like, no drugs for me. I want to have this natural experience. Okay. I would just say, you know, that pain, nausea, itchiness, all sorts of unpleasant symptoms can arise towards the end of life. And there's a lot we can do about those things with medications and judicious use of medications. So you'll hear a lot of people who think actually that hospice actively kills you or that the second they start morphine is when they're trying to actually hasten your death. This is not true. You could use morphine and opiates irresponsibly and hasten someone's death. But we know in good hands and skillful hands, these medications can be really helpful to clear the, the noise of pain and nausea and those kinds of physical sufferings. So, and other thing to note, so we can do that very well. 
and not necessarily snow you and make you loopy with meds. A lot of people don't quite understand this point, which is that left untreated, pain can and often does cause delirium. So delirium at the end of life, that is disorientation and confusion, is very common. And sometimes the inciting event to the delirium is uncontrolled pain. So, so if you, if you, even if you want to have this idea of this conscious death as appealing to you, great. But just know that sometimes that means treating the pain, not just avoiding medications. Again, here the difference is you got to find your way to a doctor uh, or nurse practitioner, someone with a prescription pad who is well-trained in how to use these meds. They can be very helpful and they can be used judiciously. So did that answer your question, Sam? Yeah, well, so, so I guess there's, there's a few other issues entangled here. So that the, hmm. when you say judiciously, that uh, I think to most people's ears will suggest that doctors at that point are still concerned about the prospect of opiate abuse, hmm. which, you know, if, if someone is, is literally dying, seems frankly crazy. So hmm. I, I know you were talking about it with reference to you know, a person's um, uh, level of awareness, you know, wanting to be conscious to, up mm-hmm. until the, the last moment to be able to, to interact with the people around them. But, um, and there are some trade-offs there, but is there any way in which our opiate crisis and kind of bizarre concerns about uh, addiction are confounding what is compassionate to do in end-of-life care, or do clinicians have, have, their, uh, have all of that sorted out? Mm. I wish, man. I wish we had it all sorted out mm. as a system. We don't. Sadly, the pain treatment pendulum has, in our lifetimes has swung around a lot. You know, when I was a patient in the early 90s, it was still the old school, like basically don't treat pain you know, or you know, barely treat pain. And then as, you, as we all know, in the 90s, that kind of took a different route. And all of a sudden, doctors finally started paying attention to pain a little bit too much and made it a little too easy to get opiates. And then we ended up with the opiate crisis. So, and here we are heading back towards some sort of lockdown where, med- where plenty of doctors I'll meet think they have no responsibility or very little responsibility to treat your pain and suffering. I think that's negligence, deeply problematic, and gets at the flawed sort of structure or setup for healthcare that we've pursued in this country. So there's a lot to say on this one. This is why, you know, plenty of doctors of any specialty are good at treating symptoms and do do use these meds carefully and thoughtfully. But increasingly, that's a rare and rare phenomenon outside of people who specialize in this. So this may be a very good reason if your pain or your symptoms aren't being well controlled. Never mind the spiritual and emotional and all these other big layers of support, but just the, the nitty-gritties of symptom management. Just know that if, you, if you're suffering much more than you think you need to, this may be a very good reason to pull in a palliative care team. Palliative care teams, hospice teams are generally speaking, much better trained in how to use these meds and also how to evince the wishes of the person taking the meds underneath it to help them kind of medicate appropriately. So yeah, no, you can't rely on this kind of care from any old doctor, unfortunately, for all sorts of reasons, but this may be exactly why you need palliative Mm. care in the mix. And is that available in more or less every major hospital? And if you're being treated for cancer or heart disease or some aftermath of, a, of an emergency, and 
you find that you're coming up against fairly abstemious uh, and puritanical attitudes with respect to pain control? Can you request a palliative care specialist to come in as a second opinion and, and have that wish be fulfilled? Short answer is yes. Uh, thanks to a lot of, of work from our colleagues in palliative medicine, the field has grown very quickly in the last 25 years or so, to the point where most large hospitals will have some palliative care program. So it's probably up to 85, 90% of big hospitals now. Now, first of all, not all care gets meted out in the hospital. So outpatient or home-based palliative care is on the rise, but uh, less common. And then there are regional disparities. You can get, if you're in San Francisco, you got a lot of palliative care to choose from. In Chicago, Milwaukee, there's certain old early adopters of palliative care. The Southeast, upper Midwest, there's uh, all sorts of palliative care deserts out there, just like there are healthcare deserts. So it's complicated, but if you find yourself in a large hospital, you'll very likely have access to some amount of palliative care. Mm. That is a true statement. And so on, on the, finally, on the point of assisted suicide, I don't know if that's the appropriate phrase, and I, and I guess euthanasia is mostly illegal, everywhere illegal. What, did, what are the legalities of these things, and what is actually happening? And I, I guess I'd also like to connect it to the misunderstanding you referenced around morphine, because I I think it is. it passes for something like common knowledge that the use of morphine in, in hospice isn't synonymous with hastening death, but it could be, right, if you wanted it to be. Mm. And that there's a sort of wink-wink, nudge-nudge protocol that's possible there. So perhaps you can disillusion me or... or um, you know, clarify the circumstance. What is actually on the menu for people who are dying and um, want to do more than just let nature take its course? Mm. Boy, you ask big questions. This is a good one, another big one too. There's a lot to say, but let's maybe just kind of clarify some terms to start. So at least the way I was taught, euthanasia per se is nowhere legal in the U.S. except for in our prison systems and states that have the death penalty. And what, again, this is, I think the word simply means good death, literally. But as it's come to mean in more common parlance, euthanasia, the discrepancy here, the difference here is that that is a doctor injecting or putting lethal medication into your body with the intent of ending your life. That is not legal in the US. Aid in dying or assisted dying used to be referred to as assisted suicide, but that word suicide has so much baggage, like it's a crime one commits suicide, mm. that there's been a move to get away from that word. It feels somehow importantly different that a person choosing to end their life in the context of terminal illness, in other words, so someone who's dying soon anyway, that somehow seems importantly different from someone who's got an open-ended life in front of them, who is clinically depressed, et cetera, who takes their life. Those feel different. Either way, the person's choosing to die, but those feel importantly different, so the, the language is a little different. Now, aid in dying or assisted dying, these laws, Oregon was the first in 1997, 
Um, at this point, now California came on in 2016. These are going state by state. And I think we're up to nine or 10 states that have chosen to have an aid and dying law on the books. And that's a process we can talk about, Sam, what goes into that. But that's not euthanasia still. That is a doctor can prescribe you lethal medication, but they're not physically putting it into your body. That's up to you. You take that prescription, you get the meds, and you take your you take the medication at the time of your own choosing. That inserts a little bit of distance, puts it on the patient per se. It's their responsibility. And that little bit of distance has, has, has of ethical and legal significance in this country. So that's kind of the aid in dying. That's kind of the landscape around hastening one's death, how you can actually choose to die. Hmm. Would it be helpful to talk any more about those details? Or I'm trying to remember what was in your question. What else yeah, was well, in your well, question? Yeah, there's, there's just these corner cases where, for instance, the patient can no longer do anything for himself or herself, and yet um, mm. may be uh, you know, obviously suffering or, or, or may, may have made his wishes known in advance that if he ever got to a place, he would want to be assisted or, mm. or the, you know, the, the person who's got power of attorney who knows that he would want to uh, be assisted at this point. And so I'm, I'm just wondering what the, what's available mm. if you get past the point of no return and the person isn't able under their own power to take the, you know, the 90 second all or whatever it is and, and dissolve them in water. Or what, mm-hmm. I don't know what is actually prescribed at this point. Yeah. And again, it connects to the, perhaps the misperception of what is available in hospice care as well around, mm. around morphine. Right. Okay, man. So let's see. So though the aid in dying laws, these nine or I think it's nine states now that have these laws in the books, you have to be coppus mentis. There's a waiting period. There's a process by which you go through to qualify for such a prescription and to get the prescription. And two of the big stipulations are you have to be thinking clearly, of course, right? Sort of, right? You know, a person who's confused and we give them lethal medications, that seems wrong. So they have to be coppice mentis and they have to physically be able to take in the medicines. Now, that second piece is really problematic. There are plenty of people who are at the end stages of, say, ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, you know, or any neurodegenerative disease. Or perhaps they have a non-functioning bowel and oral medication's not going to do the trick. There are many examples where someone who's fully in their right mind and who otherwise has earned the right to end their life in these ways can't by the letter of the law because they can't physically lift the medication to their mouth. I mean, so I am not aware. So that's the law as it's conceived. You know, and all these are meant to kind of forego this sort of slippery slope, not make it too easy for people to die, not make sure that people aren't being kind of pushed to do so. These fail safe, they're, you know, they're, they're meant to be protective, but sometimes they run amok. So this is the spirit of the law. I've never heard of any legal proceeding or lawsuit to come out of if a spouse put the medication to the person's lips, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I am not aware that that has ever landed anyone in legal problem. But just so you know, that is against the law as it's strictly read. 
So there's letter of the law, spirit of the law. And this is a hot, this is how this law, this law is an evolution. I think in another couple of years, these issues will be addressed. I hope. Hmm. But meanwhile, meanwhile, you know, I've been with families and coached them, you know, to really follow the spirit of the law. And that usually is fine. Dementia is a really tricky example where you are losing your right mind, quote unquote, and therefore it becomes really tricky. Even if for your whole life you had to let your family know that you'd want to die when you could no longer recognize them, that's going to be really tricky to pursue aid in dying as we've been talking. Hmm. So, so, so just to be clear on that point, there, there's no way to do this in advance with a, with a diagnosis. Let's say you have, a, a, I guess there are two distinct diagnoses here, which which would make this very easy to foresee, but let's say you're diagnosed with ALS and therefore can, you're more or less guaranteed to pass some point of, mm-hmm. of no return with respect to your, your motor control. And so you, you can say in advance, oh, you know, I, I want these medications available to me and uh, administered once I get to the point that I you know, can't do X. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems to me that one could also do that with respect to dementia. If you had a, an Alzheimer's diagnosis or, or some other dementia diagnosis, and you could say in advance, you know, when I, when I can no longer do X, uh, that's when I, I want help ending mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Is, there's no way to make that, you know, ethically and legally complete enough to satisfy uh, the law here in terms of it. Being able to write the recipe that will then be followed when you're no, you're, for whatever reason, you're no longer really available to collaborate in the process. I am not aware that there's a law that makes these two situations you just spelled out possible to navigate without interpreting the law a little creatively. Mm. Again, who's going to police these things is a fair question. But boy, you don't want to leave your loved ones potentially in the lurch. And it sure can feel pretty rough for a family member, unless this is super well thought out, to be taking on themselves to administer you know, lethal medication. Yeah. That can really set up a family member for some pretty complicated grief, especially like in the example of dementia. For, you know, it, one of the things that's so tricky here is, and I know this as a disabled person, you know, there's a lot of data on the books that like, if I'm walking, like before my injuries, if you'd asked me, could I survive without three limbs and would I want to be alive? You know, I'm, I don't know what I would have said, mm. but there are examples of this all over the place in the disability community. Like, but once I found myself missing three limbs and with a little love and support, you know, it became a source of life for me. So we don't really know. We have to kind of leave open that yeah. when we're finally in these shoes, Life might look importantly different to us. It's not uncommon that folks with dementia can be very, quote unquote, pleasantly demented. They may have no idea where they are or who you are, but they're smiling, you know? And boy, can you imagine? Pretty tough for a family member to a smiling spouse just looking in their eyes to give them lethal medication. So mm, it is some tricky stuff. But yeah. to answer your question, strictly speaking, currently the law does not allow for what you're saying. What the, the, the one way out here is what's called VSED, voluntarily stopping eating and drinking. In the same way that Shosh and I both referenced that you can always turn down medical treatments, including food. 
So you can stop eating and drinking. A body can go maybe a month or so without food, but it's hard to go much longer than a week without water. Mm. So you can at any point do that. I have tended to have people who have made that choice. It's not an easy one in some ways, but that's always an option. So back to the situation with dementia. Well, the person's no longer asking for food, rejecting it when you offer it. That can be a way of getting out of the way of death. Just stop giving it to them. Hmm. And don't treat their pneumonia or whatever comes up, and and death will come soon enough. That's as good as we have above board legally and ethically so far. Can hmm. I just jump in yeah. on that note quickly, please. BJ? Because I think it's yeah, such sure. an important. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's such an important note you bring up about kind of loopholes and ways around this because dementia is what is going to bedevil us going forward. Right? We are. The, the magic of medicine is that we can prop a life, life up almost indefinitely, but oftentimes our cognitive capability does not outlast our body, right? And so mm-hmm. this is exactly what happened to my father. And he, mm-hmm. it was a long and attenuated dementia over five years. And he suffered mightily over that time because anytime he would pass out or get dehydrated, he would end up in an ambulance back to the hospital, at which point he would regress even further. Every time he went to the hospital, he regressed further. And, you know, he he just got to a an infantile state at the end. And so badly I had wanted to know what his choice would be at that point. And yet I did not know before writing this book to have that conversation with him before he entered such a depleted state that he couldn't answer in a meaningful way. And I remember at one point in the hospital, I just, I looked at him and I grabbed his hand and I said, dad, do you just, are you done? You know, do you just want to let go? And he kind of sighed and I, you know, I couldn't interpret that sigh. Did that mean, yes, I'm, I'm done? Or did that mean, no, please keep me, keep me here. And the problem is, is that we don't, we don't have these conversations before often it's too late. So what I did want to say is that knowing that, you know, we're kind of hostages to our biology and, and I may inherit his dementia, I have now put very elaborate instructions for what I want into my advanced care directive where I said to my family, look, if I become demented and I don't recognize you and my quality of life seems to have really deteriorated to the point where, you know, I can't toilet myself, I can't eat myself by myself, things like that, I would like for you to, you know, elect hospice and ensure that any little bug that comes my way just is allowed to progress. And you can do that, you, you know, you can, because the, the prognosis with dementia is, is very ambiguous. So you can elect hospice and, and at that point you're not treating. So if you catch a little cold or a flu, or oftentimes, you know, there's a pneumonia that comes from aspiration, that's how my father died, you know, that can just be allowed to progress in, in a natural way where you're not treating it and you're not giving medicine. And I think that's one way around this, Sam, where you know you can say, "Look, if my quality of life has 
deteriorated that much, please just let me have a natural death. You know, there was a great piece written by Zeke Emanuel, who's a medical ethicist, Mm. and he, I think he wrote it for The Atlantic, and he basically said, after 75, I no longer want any preventative care. Mm-hmm. So after 75, I'm not going in for the colonoscopies. I'm not drinking that dreadful solution. I'm not doing it anymore. At that point, I want to just be allowed to live and let live and see what comes my way. And I think that's an interesting kind of point of view, you know, because, because none of us want to get to the state that my father got to. Mm. Where were that deteriorated? And it's just there's no quality of life there. And yet I couldn't, I was powerless in being able to really do anything about it. I just didn't have the information. Yeah. Well, one problem with dementia is that it really is, can be fairly uncoupled to the rest of a person's health. And you can have full blown dementia for many years, right? Without getting anything that's going to kill you that could be. You know, otherwise prevent prevented or not prevented. I don't know what the kind of the the clinical bell curve looks like for that, but I, you know, I, I I certainly know people who you know have parents who've had a full case of uh, Alzheimer's for a very long time, or you know, frontal temporal dementia for you know a very long time, and it's just yeah. So I, again, it comes back to what you know. What is the actual? What what would the truly compassionate uh, remedy be if we could only avail ourselves of it, and how to incorporate what um, BJ added to the picture here, which is that we, we often can't foresee who will be on the other side of a, a bad thing happening. And you know, if behavioral economics has taught us anything, it's we tend to be far more resilient than we expect. You know, many people in when they imagine losing three limbs would say, "Okay, well, throw me right into hospice at that moment." Because I'm done, but BJ is here to say that that's, in many ways, that's when life really got started for him. Mm-hmm. So it's you know it's hard to map that onto dementia, at least for me. Um, mm. Although I, I can imagine a benign form of dementia where what you've lost is all of your neurosis, and what's left is just seemingly conscious abiding and uh, the simple pleasure of, of feeling the breeze on your face, mm. but. From what I know about the experience of many people with dementia, it's certainly less benign than that. And we've t- we've tied our hands here in, in a way that mm-hmm. it's understandable because there's a, there are perverse incentives. There there's the cost of medical care and and the concern you you, you don't want people who are worried about imposing too much of a cost on their families deciding to end it all just be, just just because of the the dollars and cents of the thing. And they're even more complicated family dynamics that one could consider there. But it does seem perverse that one is left with nothing other than, you know, hoping for pneumonia in a -hmm. circumstance Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, should we going to say something there, sweetheart? No, well, I would just say that, you know, there are many other cultures that are much more forgiving about this choice Mm. than ours, Mm. particularly in Scandinavia. They're extremely permissive about people electing to die. And I, I might just tell a, a because I feel like we've gotten into a fairly gloomy territory, yeah, I might yeah, just tell yeah, a, yeah. A, a really lovely story about a friend whose father had a de- degenerative lung condition and it was getting very hard for him to breathe easily and he was coughing through the night and 
he just felt like it was really unpleasant enough that he did not have the quality of life that he wanted. And so he elected Aiden Dying. He lived in Washington. And the family worked with Death with Dignity, which is an incredible organization, to help guide them through the process. And, you know, he was totally compass mentis. And the path that he took was just really remarkable. I mean, he he had a series of weekends where he had family come and visit him and spent weekends with the people he loved. He he chose his last meal. He wanted linguine with clams the night before he took his cocktail. He played games with his family the night before and they, you know, climbed into bed with him. And he said, he said things like, you know, I, I feel like I should be packing for this journey, but I this is the one journey I don't need to bring anything, anything with me for. And and there was there was a there was an allowance of like humor and levity around the bedside. You know, he it was a blustery day and he he was like, is this a sufficiently gloomy enough day for me to die? And you know, there there can be these moments of just beauty and levity at the end. And BJ and I heard so many stories about this at the end. So there can be a really beautiful aid and dying experience. You know, I mean, we, I think both of us would advocate for every state allowing for this and mm. giving people more agency in the way that they design the end of their life. Yeah. So I just wanted to end with a, that ending. Mm. Okay. So BJ, I r- realize I, I've, I've posed the question a couple of times and haven't gotten an mm-hmm. answer on uh, morphine in hospice. Is there some reason why you don't want to touch it or has it just been, you just haven't? Oh, no, I'm happy to touch it okay. <laughs> as it were. Yeah. Uh, and I, I promise me we can cut back to Shosh's ending there too in a moment if it's all right. It's important. But on this idea of morphine and hospice, you know, some of this is a sort of a communications needs to happen. Get the morphine doesn't, is not a euphemism for kill granny. Mm. Um, so part of this is just better education and we need to communicate what the heck we're doing. But it's true enough what you say, Sam, that there is this sort of mildly underground, uh, we won't call it hastening death, but we'll just increase the morphine beyond the doses required to aid in pain or breathlessness. That happens not infrequently. I don't have data to tell you how much, how often. And it feels merciful. Does that answer? Does that yeah. finally sort of answer? Yeah, your yeah, question? yeah, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Well, so yeah, to, to Shoshana's point, this um, this can seem gloomy, but it really, I, I think we're we're doing quite a service here. It's just it's a very, I think we're producing a a very compassionate document for people here, and uh, you you certainly have done that in your book, which again has much more detail, and I I, I highly recommend that people read it. Is there anything we haven't covered? I, I now we, we've gone about two hours here. Is there anything we mm-hmm. haven't touched that you, you want to touch in closing? I, I'd love to give Shosha the last word, but I just want to key off something that she said about beauty. And oh boy, we can't possibly do justice to all the things you're going to come across when you're dying or tending to someone who will die. It'll be harder than we can spell out for you here, but it'll also be more, very likely more beautiful than we could ever spell out here too. So hold these things lightly, keep an open mind and heart, and, and you will find your way. And it can be beautiful. It really it's, can be stunning. Mm. Yeah. And I will simply just say, my only last, last comment is, you don't muck with life or death and nature's version of it lightly. And the fact that we haven't answered all questions about how to get people just the exact death that they want or need 
is not really shocking. I don't see that as a failing. I understand why it's complicated. But let's just say an effort to answer some of your other questions that we don't have a really good biomedical answer to. Well, we do know that most people electing or many people electing to hasten their death is because they feel like a burden or they've lost a sense of meaning in their lives. It's not often, it's not as often due to untreated pain or something mm-hmm. like that. It's more existential issues. Mm. So maybe all our listeners here, maybe when, as we start talking about these things, I think we can all, all, all do ourselves and each other a great favor by working to create a take on reality where we're not considered burdens because we need help and where we learn how to hold meaninglessness when we've lost a sense of meaning just as well as we've learned to make meaning. So there are all sorts of things we can do as a people, as individuals, irrespective of these policy and legal issues and that will really, I think, hold the day. Before we pivot to you, Shoshana, I realize there's a question I wanted to ask you both here. Have psychedelics played a role for either of you personally? And what are your thoughts on the increasing interest in, in using psychedelics, specifically psilocybin and uh, MDMA, which technically is not a psychedelic, mm-hmm. for dealing with it with end of life anxiety and, and many of these existential issues? Mm-hmm. I can start and then we'll then show us really, and you finally get to have a talk, sorry, going on. But I'll simply say yes, a big, 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 enthusiastic, cautious yes. I have used psychedelics personally. I have worked with patients who have used them to really good effect. I think we have to be very respectful of set and setting. I think we have to be very respectful of context and integration. And these are not to be used lightly per se, but the data are pretty stunning. Uh, and for especially for issues like existential crises, people who don't feel like they belong, these things that medicine has nothing to throw at except for like a wet blanket, you know, a Valium or something. Mm. But the psychedelics to actually feel, not as an idea, but actually to feel this sense of belonging to the universe, that life will go on without you, that you are part of this, that's an incredible effect and a durable one at that. And I have experienced it myself and has, as have some of my patients. It gives me one, this is the frontier, one of the frontiers that gives me great hope in our big conversation here. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's my two cents. Yeah, I have really little to add. I haven't touched the stuff, but I think it's the first thing I'm going to do when I receive that <laughs> diagnosis <laughs> because I'm so encouraged by the, the data that, you know, people do one guided treatment and you know came into the room just beset with terror about their prognosis and then you know after the treatment a full year later have have no anxiety but i mean that's just stunning after one treatment so i'm incredibly encouraged as as bj is yeah yeah so i i can see shoshana's protocol here it's it's psilocybin and then running around town trying to catch pneumonia or COVID. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Psilocybin in a very crowded place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Shoshana, did you have anything else you wanted to add or did we bring it into the end zone for you? Well, I mean, I, you know, I would just say I, I think a lot about how what we can learn from the natural world when it comes to death. We have a a one-page anecdote in the book about how nature dies, and we follow the life of a big tree, uh, which spends its first hundred years growing 
it's second hundred just living and existing in that forest network, that intelligent network. And then it's final hundred years, it's actively dying. And rather than hoarding its assets all the way to the end, the tree begins to shed its highest value molecules to nourish the ecosystem around it. And I have a colleague at IDEO who calls it a molecular Craigslist, where it's just giving away as much as it possibly can. And that final hundred years turns out to be the the most productive and generous period of its life. And I just feel like there's so many lessons for us as human beings about, you know, as we senesce, you know, what does it mean to be a generous part of this ecosystem of caring for our world, of giving things away, of just leaving the planet you know, in a better place than, than when we came in. And so I'll just, I just take that lesson and want to give it as much as possible. Mm. Mm. Nice. Well, um, again, thank you both for writing this book and for taking the time to speak with me today. It really is, uh, I think we're, we're ambushing any audience on some level with the granularity here, because mm. very few people wake up on any given day wanting to think about these things. But Speaking personally, I'm, I'm very glad I have, and I, I even learned things in this conversation even after reading your book. So it's um, thanks again for taking the time to do what, you're, what you both are doing. Oh, thanks for having us. This was a great pleasure, Sam. Yeah, Sam, thank you so much. We, are, we feel really lucky. What a joy talking with you. And thank you so much for having these conversations. You, this will make it easier. <laughs>